Thanks for listening to the Women Emerging podcast. Every week we put up a new episode with insights into leadership, practical leadership, seen through the eyes of women leaders of all ages and all sectors from right across the world. Our aim is for women to be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and join Women Emerging on our website, womenemerging.org. That's womenemerging.org for more fabulous free leadership content. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Julia Middleton here, Director of Women Emerging and your podcast host. This week, it's Catherine who shares her insights about leading, illustrating each one with an object. Catherine is a scientist and an extraordinarily successful scientist. She looks at leading through the eyes of science, through the prism of science, and her insights have been completely fascinating to me. Catherine, there was never any question, was there, what your first object would be? It's a picture of your mother. Why? My mother has has been um, very close to my my journey as a scientist and as a leader since I was about eight years old. Um, She was diagnosed with metastatic melanoma, which is an aggressive form of skin cancer. And after her treatment, developed a lifelong incurable disease called lymphedema. And as a young person, that was something that I saw that really changed my mom's life and our family's lives. And so I said, mom, I'm going to cure you or treat you one day. I made a promise and fully intended to keep that. Um, so as a 14-year-old, I started to develop protocols and, and proposals to try to develop the first drug treatment for lymphedema. And over the last 10 years of pursuing this work, I have really found that Though my mom was my initial motivator, um, my motivations have have expanded beyond that in in terms of the love that we have for the work that we are doing and for the people it may serve. And so this picture of my mom symbolizes that as leaders, you know, it can be very powerful to lean into love and to recognize that where there is love, there can be very strong purpose. It's interesting, isn't it, that word, because some people sort of almost think that the word love is almost an unprofessional word. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I think it's interesting to, to bring it into a professional context, but also to give it a bit of a broader definition, because I think we, we oftentimes associate love with one or two things. That's love for family or for a partner, for friends. But this can be a broader and at times even, you know, a, a bigger love for all of humanity and, and seeing that our work can be channeled into um, this kind of loving sort of manner. Um, it can trans transform the way people say in, in the case of medicine and medical research, not only the way that they cope with disease from a, like a biomedical process with new treatments that this could be pumping out, but also the way that people are feeling. And so I often say how powerful it can be to try to change and, and transform people's hearts with love and with science uh, in, in tandem together. And I suppose you don't have to say it, you've just got to do it as a leader or feel it as a leader. And then other people know that you feel it. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And I, and I think being able to openly talk about what, what motivates us, our core values and our belief systems. I know that for me, love is almost always, if not always, number one on the list of that discussion to, to set a bit of an example, but also to, to demonstrate with everything that we're doing that love is literally injected, if I can say it that way, injected into each decision that we're making um, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and that can help us stay aligned, I think, with our paths too, right? Is even when we're kind of traversing the unknown, if it feels like, I don't know if it's this decision or that, if we can stick to our core values, if we can stick to the things we believe in, and in, of course, in my case, in love, um, we'll always know that we're close to that path, close to the things that that matter to us, matter deeply to us and to our teams uh, and to our mission ultimately. So it's almost this beautiful guiding principle as well as a, a deep motivator. Your second object is in a way not unrelated, is it? It's, it, <laughs> it looks like a little box and mm-hmm. w- what's inside it? It's a check, you say. Yeah. So, so why have you got a little box with a check inside? Yeah. So the, the little box that is sitting beside me is uh, an early career, uh, early career moment. And this was from my first placement as a, a research scientist. I would have been 15. And then I had just an incredible mentor. And her name is, you know, Dr. Dr. Bodish. And she welcomed me into her, her research lab to work age on some 15. of my age, age 15. 15. Yeah. 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 To to work on these these experiments. And I think by the the end of kind of the series of experiments I was doing um, under her guidance, I pulled I had written a check because I had assumed, you know, I'm gonna need to pay pay for these expensive experiments. This is not you know, backyard science, like I had, had been doing, I'm, I was at, at a lab now and I handed her the check and she politely gave it back to me. And I think in that moment, I learned a lot from a mentor and what it means to first be a mentee and to accept guidance, support, and help from people who are mentoring me, the people who are around me. But then also I think that planted a seed for me for when I would start to mentor other young people. She, she showed me that, you know, even though someone might be young or coming in from a different field, if you can see that there is drive and potential, you should nurture it. And you may be able to look at somebody and see a different potential or a different outcome than what they may see for themselves and recognize that as a mentor, I think what I have seen really work for me when mentoring students or in, even in this moment is instead of of telling someone exactly what they have to do, you can almost set these little checkpoint markers and and see what that mentee might do with it. Let them ultimately choose their path, but give them things to consider or opportunities to see what they can do with them so that that potential can then be actualized through the commitment and the, the hard work of of that mentee that you're you're mentoring it's interesting Catherine isn't it because when we've talked I almost get the impression you found it difficult to accept the check yeah 
<laughs> Absolutely. Why? Why was it so difficult to accept it? Yeah, I, I think, you know, part of it was trying to, you know, I, I had been very used to at, up until that point, um, feeling like I, I was driving an effort. I was trying to make change and innovate and I was coming with ideas and I felt this almost like this weight and this obligation that I I have to be forefront. I have to be leading this. And I think that was a moment where, again, it allowed me to step back and recognize that to create deep, meaningful, sustainable change is not a one person feat. And I think up until that point, you know, I had some good mentorship to help me develop some of my protocols, but, um, I was learning a lot on my own. I wasn't learning it, say, at school. It was a lot of independent efforts. And this really showed me that, like, the team effort is the way to go. And we don't know it all. We may not have the resources or, in this case, the funds to do it all ourselves. And taught me a lot about, like, opening my eyes to the, I think, the wisdom that is around me as well. Um, and that's in science, that's in life in, in general, is to, to be humble and to be kind and to, to look at ourselves in a still positive, but like a critical lens of, we have a lot of growing to do. And I say this at 25, this was true for me at 15, at five, and this will be true for me when I am 50 years old. Growth is an iterative, constant process. And we can learn from people who are 30 years our senior or 20 years younger than us, I think that we can learn something from pretty well every interaction that we share with the world and with another human being. So, And if I'm lucky enough to meet you when you're 50, you'll still have that box with the check inside. Uh, that's coming with me wherever I go. Yeah. Good constant lesson reminder to, to stay grounded in humility and learning and excitement for that learning. For sure. But inside that, so the third object is a figurine. Yes. Yeah. And and I I was confused by the figurine. Explain the figurine to me. Sure. So the figurine here is um, holding uh, a star. And it's something that my mother gave to me at one of my early science fair competitions. And it was really about always maintaining an openness, almost like a childlike curiosity to what is around us, to what is possible. Um, even when, you know, a research feat like trying to cure your mom's incurable disease feels impossible. And I think early on in my journey, prior to any of my, you know, writing of proposals, there was a moment where that childlike curiosity really served me very well. And it was, I was, you know, <laughs> reading all of these papers, scientific journals. I know this. This is yeah. the gardening magazine. This is the oh, gardening I magazine. Story. I love this story. <laughs> yeah. I, and it's, it's so interesting to be, you know, speaking now, like chatting with you here in the house where the gardening magazine was found. I was downstairs and uh, at the kitchen table one morning and I was had been reading a lot of really intense science and I, I was looking at this magazine my mom had left out and I read about 
the lupin flower, uh, which is very common in the Maritimes uh, and kind of coastal re regions. And lupins had anti-inflammatory properties. And I remember at the time I said, well, my mom has inflammation. This is an anti-inflammatory. Therefore, I should put them together and see what happens. Uh, of course, that is a very, very simple-ish approach to inflammation. There's a lot of pathways and cascades. But that is what started me down the path. And so I wrote to the author of this article and said, can you, you know, what are active compounds in, in these flowers? And he sent me a whole list. And uh, two of the compounds I had come across actually in some of the research I was reading. And the third one I picked by chance. Again, kind of childlike curiosity. Uh, there wasn't that much evidence necessarily behind this particular compound. But funny enough, to this day, that is the compound that showed the most promise with my kind of preclinical uh, lab experimentation. That was the one that was really helping motive or move the lymphatic system uh, when it was impacted by by inflammation. And so that's you know bringing in the the statue once again. It's holding this star. It's holding this childlike curiosity that can blossom. When you're a leader, sometimes. I don't know if it's happened to you, certainly to me, you sort of feel like some of the people you lead begin to become really very serious and very, what they perceive to be professional and sort of try and knock that curiosity out of the team. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is that leaders need to nurture it. Nurture it. Yeah. I think, you know, ideas are born from just, you know, chance conversations from picking up random gardening magazines from you know there's a time to be i think uh, serious in a meeting or in a boardroom whatever that may be but also having fun with what we're doing you know obviously if it's appropriate depending on the setting but i think that there is a lot of merit to creating an environment where people feel comfortable and safe to share ideas to create together and to have fun doing it to, to almost get ourselves out of our heads sometimes so that we can find that little piece of, of information or that new idea that's sitting in the back of the brain there that uh, otherwise hasn't been accessed because we have a million other things that we're thinking about in a very serious manner. But to just see the magic in the moments that surround us in a day-to-day. -day. I had a, a friend a couple of weeks ago say, find the magic in the mundane. And I think you know that ties into leadership to try to motivate our people to see that there is magic all around us. We just have to be open to it. Yeah. So then we get to the University of Calgary and we get to the point where you are responsible for sort of coordinating two labs. Yes. And you must have learned a lot about how to coordinate things because it's not an easy thing to do, is it? No. getting two entities to decide to work together yeah what did that teach you about leadership i think as leaders we can be very tempted to be really really in there and, and trying to constantly make something happen i don't like i don't love the word micromanage but kind of really get into the details and, and try to make things happen almost inorganically it's interesting, isn't it? When you're given the brief to coordinate something, 
Mm-hmm. You sort of feel right. Okay, so I pull my sleeves up yeah. and I'll get in there and start coordinating things. And you're saying, don't do that. <laughs> what should happen? Don't ignore it, yeah. but what should happen and watch for the moments of alignment. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, making sure we always put the efforts in to lay our foundations to, you know, I would love if things magically would always just happen without putting that hard work in, but you got to put the hard work in to, to lay the foundation, but know that these almost chance things do happen and they really, in many ways, positively affect our experience as leaders, our team's experience, and then ultimately the mission that we're working towards for sure. So then we come to your last object which is a lab book. Yes. It's a lab book and then there's another thing. Yes. Which I don't know what it is, but you're going to explain it to me. For sure. Tell me about the lab book. Yeah. So the lab book is, you know, a practice as as scientists to always take notes on your experiments, very detailed notes on your experiments so that you know what you have done uh, along the way, what ingredients you've used, what methods you've used, for a couple of purposes. One of them is reproducibility. So when you publish a paper, when you share your science, when you repeat an experiment, you know it's good science when you're able to repeat uh, and reproduce. Um, that's a reliability piece. But I think also for a lot of people, myself included, my lab book also tells me what works and what did not work and to have very detailed notes on kind of both paths. And the other thing I had brought with that lab book is uh, part of uh, an experiment that uh, didn't work. And what was interesting when the kind of outcome had happened, it was like, man, this particular experiment was just not happening for me. I was able to constantly go back to my lab book and reiterate and figure out what was working here, what was not working here, and change one thing at a time until, boom, there was success, the experiment worked. And I think that is a broader lesson, just, you know, beyond science, but as leaders, of how important it is to pay attention to what we are doing, to constantly reflect. And I'm someone who really does encourage people to also take notes on how we go about things. So I think that this lab book is excellent for science, but it's also an excellent practice for broader life so that we can reiterate as leaders and and recognize what's working in our teams, what's not working in our teams um, so that we can move closer towards that ultimate goal. I am absolutely fascinated by, given what huge success you've had at such an extraordinary age, you must spend your life not just meeting people who believe in you, but probably people who really patronize you. I, and I bet you've actually had to lead people who totally patronize you. And I mean, how do you do that when you must look at them and think, I achieved by, by the age of 15 something you can't even dream of. And now I know you're not so arrogant as to think that, <laughs> but, but how do you cope when people patronize you? You know, I think if I had a 
perfect answer. I would splay it out right now. And that would be the end of all of the, the challenges for whether that's a young person, whether that's someone who, um, you know, is identifying with a minority group, like we would all be able to just move through, but I don't have the answer. I might have a part of the answer when I'm like 50 years old, in which case we'll do another episode and that'll be great. But I've, I've understood maybe what things might not work for, for me, at least in my own journey. And again, it feels like I'm almost reading a page out of that lab book. I think in conflict or when someone's being patronizing, you know, I ultimately, first off, I do surround myself by, with people who do believe in me so that in those tough moments, I feel like I have strength and energy and, and positivity behind me. I also recognize that kindness is a key ingredient when we are addressing, you know, folks who might not look at us uh, either on par or, or as a, an inferior. But to be kind can be very surprising, I think, to people when they might be treating you a certain not so good way. I think it's not at all showing weakness. I think it's showing our strength, you know, trying to understand and put ourselves in their shoes when you're looking at a 15 year old. What might you be feeling? What experience experiences might you have had in your own journey as a scientist that have made you feel like you need to say something that's not supportive or do something that's not supportive? I mean, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and things will come to us that challenge us that aren't fair, that, you know, sometimes are downright mean. But if we can continue to pump kindness and love back, that tips the, in my opinion, that can tip the scale in the favor of positivity and hopeful collaboration, whether it's with that person or it's with somebody else. So you remind me of an expression my father used to have, which is when you're in the right, that's when that's when you need to be absolutely charming. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Right. You just <laughs> honestly, I, I think in the right, I think when we're in the wrong, we also need to be absolutely, we need to be real with people. I want to see your lab book. I think I should have seen your a lab book about 25 years ago. It would have helped me a lot. Because the temptation to squash people that patronize you. <laughs> I don't think I've always resisted it. Yeah. yeah. Are you pretending to me that you've always resisted it? I have tried to, is what I would say. You know, I think uh, to say situations, these types of situations haven't affected me would be not true. They can be really tough. And also mixing that with uh, being, uh, you know, 15, 16 year old teenager, where there's a lot of various forms of stuff that teenagers do to each other that just you know, isn't nice. And then mix that with you, you encounter difficult situations through the work that you're doing. Hopefully, and you know, you're doing this work in the name of love. And it's like, at the end of the day, I, you can't control how other people treat you. 
you can control your reaction to it. And it's been years of me constantly going over, you know, when I feel the need to be defensive or to, to pop back at something, trying to slow that immediate process and say, why? Like, why do you feel this way? And also, why might they feel this way? It isn't a super smooth journey, but it's not something I think at this point that hopefully um, <laughs> shoots out very often anymore. I keep it internal, go through that process in my mind, and I find even the mere repetition of, it's almost like this, like having an emotional awareness, like knowing the processes in your mind that might draw out a defensive reaction or a feeling like you need to get your back up. <clears throat> we get to know know it like muscle memory the more that we go through life. Um, and it's funny I say this now because I know I will say it in, again, 10 years, 20 years, hopefully, you know, just constantly growing and constantly learning and recognizing that our journey is not at the end. There is so much more to come. And the connection between all these objects is the picture of your mother. Exactly. Exactly. These are lessons that I know my mother single-handedly could also teach me because she has learned them through her own extraordinary journey through what she has done with her life. And it's amazing now to, you know, to talk about the lessons that have been coming up and to see how she as a mother and as a mentor also at times took a step back to let others lead in teaching me, which is an amazing, amazing gift that I have had in my life to have had a mother like mine. Thank you, Catherine. There was a lot there, wasn't there? About love, about giving and accepting help, about protecting childish curiosity, so important, about holding back to allow alignment to happen, and then about taking notes. That's a very interesting one. And, and also about meeting people who are patronizing to you with kindness. I cannot see, say that that has been my strength over the years. I'm pretty sure it hasn't been, but I'm gonna work hard on it. So thank you, Catherine, and please send my love and admiration to your mother. These five objects episodes have been a complete delight to do. Next week, we have another woman with five more objects. Till then, I send you much love, Julia. To become part of our movement and share your thinking with us, subscribe to the podcast and join the Women Emerging group on our website at womenemerging.org. We love all of the messages you send us. Keep them coming.